Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. Lord, I thank you again for all that are in this room. Lord, I would ask now before we begin that you would guide and direct the very words coming out of my mouth. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be a present reality. Lord, in my own heart as I speak, but in all of our hearts as we think through this and listen. Lord, I pray that you would as well through this, God, I pray that you would instill hope and joy at all that you've done and how you've given to your people such great gifts. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, just bless us through this passage today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I'm looking at Ephesians. We're doing a series about church, as you may remember. This is the fourth one, I think, unless I lost count. might be the fifth one. No, it's the fifth one. Fifth one, we've talked about church. Um, I figured out last week that one of the things that's happening with last week and this week is I'm giving kind of a big overview of the book of Ephesians is kind of the backdrop for what we're talking about. In fact, if you look at, if you ever read through Ephesians, I would encourage you to read it again if you haven't lately. Just read through it. It's amazing. The first three chapters, and I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't catch this back when I preached through this. Maybe I did and I just forgot. But the first three chapters are all these big, grand, eternal ideas. We talked about this a little bit last week. There's phrases in that first uh, half that talks about things like before the foundation of the world or a plan for the fullness of time. Now, come on. A plan for the fullness of time? That's a huge idea, is it not? That's an overarching, big idea kind of phrase. There's phrases like uniting all things in him in heaven and on earth. Even the prayers in the first half of Ephesians say things like, uh, uh, we're, we're praying for knowledge, uh, for the people that have knowledge of the immeasurable greatness. I mean, what kind of prayer is that? Like Paul's praying that these people have a knowledge of the immeasurable greatness of all that God has done. Or an enlightenment concerning the hope of a glorious inheritance. Those are big, big things. And even when Ephesians talks about our own personal spiritual lives, it talks about it in terms like a resurrection. We're quickened, we're made alive. And the works, it's even told to us in Ephesians 2.10, the works that we do have designs that date back to eternity past. Those are huge concepts. Mind-blowing, big, infinite ideas. Stuff you love hearing about in church and just thinking about. I do anyway. Do you love that stuff? I love thinking about that stuff. Big, big things, glorious things. The second half of chapter four of Ephesians through the rest of the book suddenly gets different. By the end of chapter four, he's talking about things, well, frankly, stuff that other people like hearing in church, or maybe you do like hearing these things in church as well. Stuff like, don't lie, tell the truth. Right? That's interesting, isn't it? We went from big grand ideas like plans for the fullness of time to stop lying, tell the truth, no stealing. Right? I feel, every time I say that, I feel like I'm talking to a little one. No stealing. Right? No anger, clamor, malice, or wrath, but there should be kindness. And then you get into chapter 5, and it talks about no sexual immorality. Talks about abstaining from that. Talks about avoiding filthy language. Talks about how we should be thankful. Talks again about sexual immorality. Talks about how we should be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with, songs with uh, thanksgiving in our hearts. Then the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, we hear things like about marriage. 
in parenting, in employment, how we should act. And it ends in chapter 6 with this describing this life like a fight. I would agree with that. In fact, it describes this like life like a fight you're fighting that you're going to need some spiritual armor to win. That is the book of Ephesians all big, grand big ideas, infinite ideas to these day-to-day sorts of things. And right in the middle, there's this glue, right? There's this glue where Paul amazingly goes from the infinite to the finite. How does he tie together the infinite with the finite? Big ideas. And you find it right at the beginning of chapter 4. And I thought of it this week, and I thought, this is almost as if Paul's describing at the beginning of chapter 4 how the infinite touches the finite. That's what we're thinking about. We saw in last week's sermon how that went played out, because just looking at the beginning of chapter 4, you started off talking about maintaining the unity of the Spirit, but then just a few verses later, he's already shifted into attaining the unity of the faith. And it goes, it's going from these infinite to these finite sorts of things. And right there in that glue and the connective tissue between the infinite and the finite is the one spot where he focuses in on introducing to you the church. In fact, I'm going to propose to you today, and if you don't believe me, feel free to dig through the New Testament. I'm going to propose to you today that Paul consistently does this. When he goes from the infinite to the finite, not always at the center of a book like Ephesians, But there's a connection between the infinite and the finite, and almost every single time he talks about it, he talks about the church, God's assembled people. And I want to include this phrase, in all of its messy glory. Can I say it that way? In all of its messy glory, right there as the infinite and the finite come together, we see this thing called the church. And so that's what we're looking at when we're looking at Ephesians 4, when he's talking about the infinite, and he's coming down, and before he gets into stop lying, start telling the truth, stop the sexual immorality, before he gets into all those things, he goes from these big plans for the fullness of time to this, and right in the middle, you see this passage, Ephesians 4, and I'm going to go actually up to verse, I think, 16. Let me start with Ephesians 4, 1 through 10 for context, and kind of what I talked about last week. So Ephesians chapter 4 starts off by saying this. I therefore, Paul speaking, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's what we talked about last week. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain, not create, but maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body. Because see, that unity is already there, is it not? There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So you see still a little bit of this infinite, but he's starting to talk about some more practical things. In fact, the very next verse, he talks about what from this infinite has been given to us. Listen to verse 7. But grace, unmerited favor, unmerited blessing, was given to each one of us 
according to the measure of Christ's gift. Do you see, do you see the infinite and the finite together there? In, according to the measure of Christ's gift, there's something been given to us, each one of us. Okay? Therefore, it says, and then he, he quotes something from uh, uh, Psalm chapter, I believe it's Psalm chapter 68, verse 18. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then he says in verse 9 and 10, explaining that passage, he says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? This is talking about the fact that Christ came from heaven to the earth, and then after, right before he ascended, what did he do? There was a life, a righteous life, a death, a burial, a resurrection, and then he ascended. So the one who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. He became a man. This infinite God came in the form of a finite mortal human being. And then, like I said, though not mentioned here, crucified, died, buried, and resurrected. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then, according to this, he led a host of captives. Praise God for that. That's us. Right? Led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men, is what it says. This is the context of where we're at. And Paul's now going to talk about these gifts to men. I'm going to talk about it in four parts. Okay? I wish I had some nice witty titles for these four parts, but I don't. I tried, and you'll hear them. They're not very witty. So here we go. You ready? Four parts. Part number one, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Let me read it, and then I'm going to go back and talk about it. Okay? Part one. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to future or to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Now, in order to illustrate the gifts that God gave to us, I've got a little illustration I want to give you, but I don't want you to see me get it out here, so I want everybody to close your eyes for just a second. Look down. Don't look. Everybody close your eyes. Okay? In just a second, I want you to look up. You ready? Look up. I know, this is disappointing. It's me. <laughs> now, the only person in this room that would be okay with this is not in here right now. It would be my mom. My mom named me Matthew, which means gift of God. And she'd be like, I don't get the joke, Matt. It's true. But she's not in here to defend me. This is the thing. God's gift to his people is people. I, what I found fascinating about this, and I, I'm going to be honest with you, this is something that is close to my heart. This is something that I get passionate about. I just, I'm telling you, of all the things I get up and talk about, the thing that gets me the most excited, where I feel the most joy, is this idea that God's gift to his people is his people. That's what this says. That's amazing to me. It's not abstract. I appreciate that. There's a lot of religions that it feels what to get from here to there to whatever God wants you to be or to do. It's very abstract and you have to reach these 
planes of thinking or enlightenment or these levels of the, and it's like, no, what God gave us was other people. Not perfect people, but people. Isn't that awesome? I mean, people are tangible. You can see them. And some of you don't like it. You can touch them. <laughs> you can smack them. You can smack them. I don't know where that came from, but yeah, it's true. Poke them, hit them, whatever. You know. But it's people. It's actual people. It's flesh and blood. People in front of us. And that's exactly what this passage says. It says, and he gave, and then he describes, he gives titles to these four types, roles, let me say, of people. God's gift to his people is people. I'm going to present, present some ideas that I'm not going to be able to discuss at this time. So let me lay out some ideas that, I, that, that in some future Q&A we're going to be able to talk about. Then I want to get back to the text, okay? <clears throat> in the New Testament, so I'm, I'm taking a rabbit trail. You guys okay with that? I'm going to get back to Ephesians in just a moment. In the New Testament, there's basically two roles or two offices that you find in the church, elders and deacons, okay? Um, Wayne Grudem, in his book, Systematic Theology, talks about elders, that role of elders. He said elders are also called pastors or bishops or overseers. In the New Testament, the least commonly used word, at least in the noun form, is pastor. Poemon. It may be surprising to us to find that this word, which has become so common in English, only occurs once in the entire New Testament when speaking about a church officer. That's interesting, isn't it? That's the word we use the most, the pastor of the church. But that's the, it's only used one time. Now, I will say it's used in its verb form more, and that's where, like, man, I, I almost went down this path. You probably would have loved it. I almost went down this path of, like, all the ways that it talks about. In fact, there's a passage in Peter where it talks about to the elders. It says, elders, shepherd your people. And it says, basically, pasture your people. But it says, pasture your flock. And what's even more amazing is the word flock is actually another form of the word pastor. So pasture the pastured people is what it's saying. That's amazing. So the elders are to pastor people. Pastor means shepherd. That's what we see in that, that verse we were just looking at, shepherds and teachers. In fact, what's really interesting about it, I'm going to go back to that right now. It says, notice the word the for just a second, the Apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds. But it doesn't say, and the teachers. It says, the shepherds and teachers. In fact, there's several theologians that believe this shepherd, teacher, pastor, teacher role is talking about the same role, the pastor slash teacher, okay? Now, don't miss what I'm saying. And this is weird for me, I know. Because I know, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, so, Matt, what you're saying is you're God's gift to us. Not exactly. Not exactly. Let me go through these, these things for just a moment. The apostles, I'm going to be honest with you, I, I don't have time to, to lay this all out. I believe the role of apostle, that position of apostle, was a, a first century thing. I'm just going to tell you that's what I believe according to the scriptures. If you go, I don't know if I believe that. I'd love to talk about it. I'll tell you why I believe that way. I'm not going to die on that hill. Okay. I believe the apostles were the ones that uh, interacted with Christ, which is why you see Paul saying, and this is in my notes, but you see Paul the apostle talking about himself as the last, like one untimely born, last of the apostles, the least of the apostles is how he calls himself. 
And so I, I think that that role was one that was specifically those who had interacted with Christ and had met the risen, resurrected Christ and were proclaiming their, the word apostle just means sent ones. So sometimes you see the word apostle used in other ways as anybody that's sent. But I think specifically it's that. But that's, a, that's not the topic of today. If you go, I don't know if that, I agree with that. That's fine. Okay. Prophets. I wish I could get into this one a little bit more too. Prophets are those I think that are foretelling, not just foretelling. In fact, most of the prophets of the Old Testament aren't telling you something that's going to happen. They're telling you what's, what is and how God feels about it. The evangelist, the word evangelist literally means telling the good news. And so you get the prophets telling us the truth of God, evangelists telling the good news of God. I don't think that even these are necessarily specifically just one person. These are gifts that God has given to his people. And they take the form of people. It's not that the person is the gift, it's that what happens in that moment, in that role, in that position, is fulfilling God's gift to his people. The last one there is the shepherds and teachers, pastors, teachers, a role that is filled what is typically by what is called an elder, a bishop, or an overseer. I have a whole extra page of notes where I could get into this. I'd love to get into this a little bit more, but that is not the focus of today. In fact, the that would derail me into a whole conversation about church government. And I almost snored when I said that out loud. I'm sorry. Um, but that's an interesting thing. Some of you may not realize this. We're a congregational church, which means we're not elder ruled. Like Paul and I, we don't just get to make decisions and you guys all have to do it. We're not, that's not how this one works. You know, it, it's funny because so often people are like, man, I, I, would I think we should do church the way the first century New Testament church did. Well, if we did, you'd have people coming in appointing your pastors and your elders for you, and you didn't have a say in it. Do you really want that? And all of us Americans go, no. <laughs> well, I think that's okay that we're a congregational church. My vote counts the same as anybody else's vote that's a member of this church. You, that's how we determine who, is, who gets to vote is that membership piece. In fact, that's an important becomes an important piece because we wouldn't want just anybody coming in and saying, I, I have a vote, right? There ought to be some process to say whether or not you're, you are one of us to vote in those situations. That's a whole other conversation. I'm okay with this. But all of these roles, all of these roles that are, 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 think about this, are speaking roles, are they not? Think about it. Every single one of these roles is a speaking into your life sort of role. So let's go through this, this pre, instead of going into gift, let's call it God's, Christ present to us. Christ present, and let's start by stating it positively. Okay, so we're still in part one, the, the positively stated present. Hello? What is the gift? What is the present? Christ gave people to his people. I'd already talked about this one. What is the purpose of this people present? See, I tried. The purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. There's two things there, right? Do you see it? What's the purpose of this people present that Christ has given to his people? Equip the saints for the work of ministry. And what's the second one there? What do you see? Building up the body of Christ. Okay, this is, this is where this is going to break down into some very simplistic things. I just want you to think through this. So the purpose of Christ's gift to his people of people is these two things. To equip the saints and to build up 
the body of Christ. How long will we need this? What's, what's the, how long will this people present persist? <laughs> well, what's it say? I see four things there. Until attainment of the unity of the faith. Are we there yet? <laughs> Not even close, are we? You're like, I, I read that one and I thought to myself, like, Lord, we're just getting started on that one, kind of. <laughs> I think we just figured out what, I don't, we probably worse at it now than we used to be at different points in history. Like, have we attained to the unity of the faith, even just in our own little town? Have we done that? No. Okay, so we still need this present. It's going to persist. Attainment of the knowledge of the Son of God. Have we attained to the, the full knowledge of the Son of God yet? No. Have we arrived at mature as the body of Christ, mature manhood? Well, if we haven't got these, I'm thinking already no. Until we've reached the measure, and this one, if you weren't for sure, how about the last one? The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Are we there yet? No. The purpose now I'm going to state negatively. Here it is stated positively in the sense of how long will this persist? How long will we need this? And, and you start to see the vision of where it's headed. What, what's the purposes behind this present that Christ has given us? If you go to verse 14, you see this. Do I want to call it a, a warning? Maybe I should call it the peril of not recognizing this. This one hits home, I think, to what I've experienced myself in watching even myself and watching others so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness of deceitful schemes. Apart from this gift, we will be children. Not childlike, but suddenly childish. Right? Tossed to and fro. Carried by every wind of doctrine. Some of you have met and know personally what this is about. Whether it was yourself or someone else, you've seen somebody that has gotten out of church and have you ever met someone that begins to i'm gonna give you a couple of extreme examples i got a friend of mine that it's it's derailed so much that i mean if i told you some of the crazy things he thought you'd be like what i mean he just he's suddenly he, he's attending the church of youtube and there's some wackadoos on there okay and the deeper into it he go, goes, the, the scarier it gets, to be honest with you. And I just, I'm watching it like, oh my goodness. Tossed to and fro. What's interesting about it to me is he, he looks at it as this, this is where it's at. But I've never seen him more from the time that I've known him more like this. All over the place. Distraught one day, joyful the next, down in the, I mean, just everywhere. And I see this passage playing out in his life. Carried by every wind of doctrine or teaching. The tossing and the carrying away will also happen by, notice, human cunning. Are there some cunning teachers out there? Not just people that believe what they're saying, but have 
deceitful purposes in what they're presenting? Absolutely. This is the primary peril of those Lone Ranger Christians. I know that behind the scenes we are carried along to God by the very Spirit of God, Christ at work in our hearts. I know this is true, and I've been presenting this to you as a church for as long as I've been here. But when the scriptures talk about what this looks like, this is the thing that I just love. What, what is the Spirit, what, what is it interacting with us look like? You very seldom see something what might be described as mystical. What you quite often see is people interacting with people, right? I would describe this as a, the means of God's grace. Let me set up an example for you. So some of you know I'm teaching geometry now in construction. I went back to teaching. I do geometry, but there's this one class I'm doing called Geometry in Construction. And some of you are like, oh, that sounds interesting already. It is because it's a, it's a two-blocked class, and the first half is geometry, and the second half is in the wood shop, Right? Do an actual construction. Like, we're not going to just talk about a triangle. We're going to make a triangle. And it won't just be a triangle for a triangle's sake. It'll be part of a roof, right? And so I'm going to get to teach them some of the concepts behind it, and then we're going to take it into actual practicality. Now, the guy that's in the wood shop, trust me, they're not assuming I'm going to guide that process, okay? I mean, I do have all my fingers, but uh, I'm not a carpenter by trade by any means, uh, the guy that's doing it, his name is Mr. Greenhall. I love Mr. Greenhall. He's an awesome dude, Christian guy. He started off, his first project was just he wanted to teach them safety and just the basics of the wood shop, right? And so he starts them off by having them build a, a birdhouse, and he talks about how to do this, and he gives them all the instructions. But he doesn't let them touch any power tools. He gives them a saw, <laughs> which was really fun watching some of these city kids. Like, how do you do this? You know, it was, you know. I'm like, they don't need power tools to cut something off. Somebody's going to hurt themselves. I mean, I can hardly stand it some days. I'm like, oh, my word. You know? And, and, and the drill, he didn't give them a drill. Like, he had this, right? Where they had to drill through the, the birdhouse hole. Like, and he's telling them how to use it and watching these kids try to figure it out. And, and then, like, sawing things. And he told them, like, put two clamps on that board because if you put two clamps, it's going to hold it better. And, he, and he, he's instructing them but getting them to do it. And some of them, they refuse to listen, and they're putting one clamp on, and then the board's moving all around every time they try to saw. I'm like, what's wrong? I don't know, you know, and it's like, but it's awesome, right? This wood shop, and they're taking, it's a fully, in fact, he's going to take them from these, pa- these hand tools to these power tools, right? In fact, uh, this last week, he did something where I'm like, I've never used this tool, and some of all you carpentry guys in here are going to know what this is. I'm probably going to use the wrong term, but so he was trying to explain to them how when you go to Lowe's or Menards and you get boards, and I knew this because I've watched Bill do this, but when he goes, you know what he does? Every time he goes to buy, I need this many boards. You know what he does with every single board? He picks it up, and he turns it, and he looks at it. I do that because I saw him do it, but I have no idea what I'm looking for. <laughs> is he smelling it? What's he... Is it, no, I. Well, what's he looking for? Is it warped? Is it straight? Is there? Do you think he ever finds a perfect one? No, he, he finds it not anymore. <laughs> Todd said not anymore. But okay, so so Mr. Greenham was teaching the kids about this, and he said, so 
he's gonna, they're going to make these little hexagonal shelves. And so when you put these connections together, you want those boards to be the same exact size so that it looks good, right? And so he's got this machine, and he's explaining it's, I think it's called a planer, where you take the board and you run it through there, and it's basically taking off just a little bit just to try to get that board the same exact size from beginning to end. And so he's taking it through, and he's teaching the kids how to do it. He's like, okay, hand it, and the, the kids hand it, and then they, it goes to the other side, and he's, you know, and every single one explains them, like, now you don't want to hold on to this, and you don't want to be all the way up here and get your hand caught, and, you know, and he's explaining all these things to them. But it's a, this fully stocked wood shop. There's tools in there that I have no idea what they do. There's a lot of them I recognize, but there's a lot that I don't. And I go in there every day that we go in there, and I'm like, well, that's interesting, you know, what are we going to do today? And so I've started participating now. So I was actually, when they run those boards through that planer, I, I went and got a board too. And I'm like, so all the kids, and I just got in line with the kids. I'm like, run it down. I don't know what we're doing here, you know? And it, but he's the one, and, and, and I use this illustration because I think that so many times we, we, have, we have this gift that's the church that God has given us and it's people that God has given to people. And I think of it a lot of times in that way, like a fully stocked woodshop. And, and so often you get people that are frustrated when they leave and it's, it's like, no, I don't, I don't need all this stuff to make, make my birdhouse and they're in the backyard with a butter knife trying to do the same thing. And you know, the, it's, that falls apart a little bit because I know in, on one hand, I know in theory, all you need is Jesus and your Bible and you're good. The problem with that is that this passage is in that Bible. And it says that Christ, when he ascended, he said, I'm going to give you something. And when he did, he didn't say, I'm going to give you the Bible. That's, that's a whole separate thing, how that has come out. In this particular case, the thing that he led away, this host of captives, these people, he freed them from sin. And he said, I'm going to give you something. And he got them over and over. They said, look around, it's you. And I'm going to use you to help you. Get to where you need to be. And some people, it's like rejecting the woodchop. I mean, this is what God has given. I, let me give you one more illustration. I'm going to come back to the woodchop one in a minute, but one more illustration. I, I had a student, like my third or fourth year teaching, his name was Zach, and he just hated math. And some of you, I know, wanted to say amen just then. Hated it. Hated it with a passion. And one of the reasons why he hated it was because he's like, I can't learn it. I just can't learn it. It makes no sense to me. And I, every day I talk to him, and I've done this with multiple students, but I always think of Zach because he, he stands out as like the, 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 the prime example of seeing this play out because I actually got to see what happened to him later on in life. I told him one day, he was come after school, he was trying to get help, and he just he was fighting me every step of the way. Like he's coming for help, but yet, you know, as I'm trying to explain, it's like trying to pull teeth to try to teach him math. I mean, he just... If I, as soon as I would start talking, you could see the disgust on his face. You know, as soon as I, now if I was talking about something else, he's like, ah, Mr. Holmes, yeah, yeah. No, it's all right. Like, okay, now let's look at this problem. Oh, I hate you. You know, it's like it just shifted so quick. And so finally I told him, I said, you know what? Here's the thing. There's a way math is learned, right? There's a way that it's learned. And it's learned by, and then I went through this process of trying, getting to the part you don't understand, asking a question, complete it, oh, okay, you got to find this part, and I went through this whole process, and I said, the other part of this is practice, because the more you do these things, and he said, okay, and I said, listen, Zach, just one thing for me, 
could you for one week, whatever I ask you to do in geometry, just do it. Just try it. Every single problem. Try every single problem. It's pointless. I don't know why I would. Just, just do it. Just, just for me as a science project. And he did. And which has happened perfectly all the time. But with this one, it did. I mean, he'd never gotten good grades in math all the way up. Well, he's, so he starts doing it, and he's like, by the end of the week, he was like, I'm getting this. By the end of the next week, he got an A. The next test, like, he had an A. He eventually ended up, like, going into math in college, some mathematics profession in college, which I thought was hilarious. It, but what was interesting is that it wasn't that he was dumb, it was that there was a way that I was saying, here's, here's how you get to this. And it's not just the how to do the problem. There's another how involved. And it's these things. And if you try these things, now if you try these things, and I told him, I said, if you try these things and that still doesn't work, and you really have, I'm gonna, I'll get off your case and I'll just try to help you pass. But he had never really tried it that way. And I find it's kind of, a similar sort of situation. You have people that say, I love Jesus, I love God. And, and, and the way that Christ is given to us to get from captives being let, set free to the full stature of Christ, according to this passage, is this thing called the church in all of its messy glory. I know it would be wrong of me not to at some point go, but Matt, you don't understand. I was in this wood shop once and the teacher had no idea what he was doing. And he was using all the wrong tools the wrong ways. And so I said to myself, I'm done with wood chops. Well, I want to tell you that don't let one bad wood chop teacher <laughs> ruin it for what God, God has blessed you with the wood shop. That was his idea. Don't let some of you are like, Mr. Arnolds, not only did this teacher, this wood shop director, not know what he's doing. He was actually, all the projects he had, he bought from Target. <laughs> or Ikea. <laughs> My wife said, don't say Ikea, I like Ikea. I said, yeah, but it's not woodshop stuff. It's not carpentry work. It's not, you know. Some people, well, you don't understand. The woodshop teacher had an affair with my wife. <laughs> I, I know some of you are like, whoa, you went there. Okay. Are there pastors that have blown it big time? Are there? Yep. Are you going to chuck what God has given you because one person was messing it up? You, the, the thing is, you can't get away from this Ephesians passage. I mean, what it's saying that Christ did, you can't get away from that. Even if you decide, I'm going to go off on my own and read the Bible myself. I don't need anybody else to help me get there. I'm telling you, you can't get away from this reality that there's still something about this. And it says that it's to persist until we've all attained the unity of the faith and reached the full measure of the stature of Christ. And we're not there yet. I talk about this and I, I don't want to ever come across as being angry about it or, or anything along those lines. If anything, I hope that you can see that I'm just, I just love it. I love 
church, not in theory, but in reality. I love church, not just church idea, but these two people and him. Johnson's back in the back. Simone, Trista, right? I go around here, the Nardonis, all these children. It's no longer this concept for me. I can remember when I went through Ephesians the first time, and remember this, this series is all about what, what are, who are we as a church, who are we as Edgewood? I'm telling you, this is my passion of my, has become the passion of my life, is to hopefully get more people to just love, not just the idea of church, but actual church. It's, here it is. You may look around and go, this is not what I wanted. But this is what you got. And it's beautiful in God's eyes. And it's exactly what you need. And you see this playing out in the last little part before Paul gets into the don't do this and start doing this and don't do this. You see the last little part play out in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4. And for lack of a better phrasing to call it, there's a percolating practicality of the people present that Christ has given us. <laughs> Don't laugh at me, Paul. That's... Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Notice the shift is not just now from certain roles that people have opportunities from time to time to fill. Understand, when I think of myself as the pastor of this church... I'm not the pastor of this church in the sense that that is only what I am. I'm the pastor right now. God, see, and that's the thing. We're praying for a miracle every single week, aren't we? I hope you are. I mean, when I presented myself to you earlier, I saw the look in your eyes. You're like, that's, I was expecting a little bit more. Right? But that's the thing. That's the glory of it. Next week when Paul gets up, or the week after that, I can't remember what our schedule is. Probably the week after that. When Paul gets up, at that moment, he's fulfilling that role, and we're trusting that God's gift 2,000 years later is being played out in that moment as he shepherds through the great shepherd. Right? But you see this percolating down to this community. Think about this community that he describes. It still comes back to words. Rather, rather what? Rather, rather than not getting to the fullness of the stature of Christ, rather than, than not arriving at mature manhood, rather than being tossed around to and fro by every wind of doctrine, instead, instead of that, this, speaking the truth in love. That's one of the hard things about when, when people step outside of church, so you don't they stop having those people in their lives that are going to speak the truth and love to them. And some of you go, yeah, but Matt, some of those people, they speak it, but they forget the love part. I know. I know. I trust that Christ, though, knows what he's doing by still having this as the way to attain the unity of the faith, mature manhood, that even in all of our, what did I call it earlier? 
ugly glory, (laughs) messy glory, that this is still God's plan for us. And you find in this community, when you start having churches that behave the way Christ intended them, there's a communication going on within that body, speaking the truth in love. You want people in your life that are going to tell you the truth. What's that? Uh, that's true. <laughs> that is true. Really. Now, some of you probably don't really want it, or when it happens, you don't like it. But the reality is, he's right. That's the people you want. Okay? Now, what's, what's fun about this is when you start thinking about it, again, not theoretically, but practically. I want Andrew to speak the truth to me. I want Donnie to speak the truth to me. I want to be able to speak the truth to Donnie. This gets really, the messiness just increases, doesn't it? But when it's done in faith, the product we just saw, and it's stated here again, right? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. So every single one, right? All you kneecaps out there and, and ankles and, right? Growing up together in Christ. This is what's happening. Where all, all of you play a different role and a different part. Every, and what's, what's even, man, just even more fascinating. If I were to go back two years, I still could have said this with the smaller group we had. It was exactly who God, and now we're large. Well, this is exactly, you've got a spot here that's purposeful in God's economy. There's not a person in this room, when I look around, there's not a purpose, person in this room that I don't look at and think, man, God has a purpose for them here. And if God moves you to someplace else, he'll have a purpose for you there whole body when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love and i just think again when you abandon this thing there's so many parts of this that you can't even begin to do you can't grow up in love with the community if there's nobody to love right we want this growth individually But I'm encouraging you to say that the only way it can happen is when we do it communally, according to this passage. This is the woodshop that God has given us. We can't go to Target and buy a fully formed Christian personality that you can just slap on. It's to be found with people. That's all I got. As you leave today, I want you to think through that. To be honest, I want to encourage you, every single one of you, from the ones that have been here, I don't care if you've been here 50 years, which I don't think any of us have been here 50 years. Mm, They're thinking back there. They're looking at each other, maybe. I don't care how long you've been here. I mean, there's people that have been at the same church for 50 years, and they haven't been a part of it yet. They've never really entered into this. I'm encouraging you. I don't care how long you've been in this building or been a part of this particular group. I don't care. I'm encouraging you. I'm asking you. I'm begging you to consider instead of just, let me put it this way, instead of dating the church, 
enter into a relationship with the church, right? Instead of just staying on the outskirts of what church is, enter in fully with people. If we're not the place for you, then find one. There's one for you. I guarantee if you are a child of God, there is one for you that you're going to fit into, but don't go looking for it the wrong way. Can I tell you that too? I wish I could go into that side a little bit. But while you're here, I want to encourage you to enter in. Get ready for the truth to be spoken. Be ready to speak it. Next week, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of what that looks like. Okay? In very practical terms, we're going to talk about it. What does that actually look like with actual human beings? So I encourage you to be here next week to hear that part. I'm going to pray and dismiss you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Ephesians. I thank you for Paul the Apostle pinning this book. I thank you for your spirit that guided every part of it, every little letter that made it into this this wonderful letter. Lord, I just thank you, God, for all that you've done for us. Lord, I thank you for every single soul in this room today. I believe with every fiber of my being, God, that you have great, grand purposes that are being played out in practical realities with the actual people that are here. Lord, I pray that you'd save us from the dream of what we think church should be and help us to enter into the messy reality that it really is. By your grace, I ask this in Christ's name, amen.